Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Hoy Dios nos habla de Mateo capítulo 7, 13 a 29. Entren por la puerta estrecha, porque es ancha la puerta y espacio el camino que conduce a la deducción, y muchos entran por ella. Pero estrecha es la puerta y goza el camino que conduce a la vida, y son pocos los que la encuentran. Cuídense de los falsos profetas. Vienen ustedes disfrazados de ovejas, pero por dentro son lobos feroces. Por sus frutos lo conocerán. ¿Acaso se recogen uvas de los espinos o hijos de los cardos? Del mismo modo, todo árbol bueno da fruto bueno, pero el árbol malo da fruto malo. Un árbol bueno no puede dar fruto malo, y un árbol malo no puede dar fruto bueno. Todo árbol que, todo árbol que no da bueno, buen fruto se corta y se arroja al fuego. Así que por sus frutas lo conocerán. No todo el que me dice, Señor, Señor, entrará en el reino de los cielos, sino solo el que hace la voluntad de mi Padre que está en el cielo. Muchos me dirán en aquel día, Señor, Señor, no profetizamos en tu nombre, y en tu nombre expulsamos demonios y hicimos muchos milagros. Entonces les diré claramente, jamás los conocí, a la gente de mí, hacedores de maldad. Por tanto, todo el que me oye estas palabras y las pone en práctica es como un hombre prudente que construyó su casa sobre la roca. Cayeron las lluvias, crecieron los ríos y soplaron los vientos y azotaron aquella casa. Con todo, la casa no se derrumbó porque estaba cementada sobre la roca. Pero todo el que me oye estas palabras y él no las pone en práctica es como un hombre insensado que construyó su casa sobre la arena. Cayeron las lluvias, crecieron los ríos, soplaron los vientos y azotaron aquella casa. Esta se derrumbó y grande fue su ruina. Cuando Jesús terminó decir de, de decir estas cosas, las multitudes se asombraron de su enseñanza, porque les enseñaba como que tenía autoridad y no como los maestros de la ley. Esa es la palabra de Dios. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This, my friends, uh, is the final week of our series, Thy Kingdom Come. If you've been with us for the last 20 weeks, uh, we have been looking at Jesus' treatise rather, uh, um, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in essence, Jesus has given us uh, various characteristics of those who are part of his kingdom. Every kingdom uh, has a particular culture, has particular law, has particular expectations of its citizens. And similarly, uh, the kingdom of God is no different in the sense that there are expectations of those who desire to be uh, citizens of the kingdom of God. Expectations that actually reflect the character and the nature of the king of that kingdom. And we've said this time and time again over the last several months, but the role of the church the call of the church, the call of Christians, 
is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible in this world. And through this series, Jesus has been challenging us in how we ought to go about doing this. And this week, in our final week, Jesus presents to us maybe the most challenging teaching that we've yet come across. If you've been with us, there have been many very challenging things that Jesus has confronted in us. Today might be the most challenging because he puts in front of us not only what the kingdom of God is like, but now he wants to make abundantly clear who is actually in the kingdom, who is actually a citizen of his kingdom, and as a result has access to all the benefits of being part of that kingdom. Frankly, there's uh, no matter how many times I come to this passage over the years, it always jars me a little bit. It forces me to again cling to what I believe about the gospel. And I hope that today, honestly, that you experience the same. I hope that today we start off jarred by Jesus' words. But by the end, we leave encouraged. So let's consider Jesus, how Jesus describes who is in his kingdom by considering not only who is in it, but who is not. Let's look at it in this, these three ways. Let's look at a jarring distinction that Jesus gives. Let's look at a confronting proposition that Jesus gives. And then finally, let's look at a firm foundation that Jesus provides. Uh, just a heads up, my first point is going to be long and then they get shorter. So uh, just a heads up. So first, a jarring distinction. Uh, to begin, let's look at what might be the most jarring passages of the entire New Testament. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that either. Let me just reread for you verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is making a jarring distinction between those who are actually his followers and those who believe that they are his followers, but in the end are not. That is, Jesus is making a distinction between, not making a distinction rather, between those who reject him and those who will receive him. That's clear. Instead, Jesus is addressing those who very much claim to be his followers. But though they claim to be his followers, in the end, he will say, you are not part of my kingdom. Away from me. Who are these people that Jesus is talking about? Well, that's what makes this passage so jarring. Because the people that Jesus is saying, away from me, I never knew you, they are professing Christians. First, let's look at what, uh, what they are saying to Jesus in Jesus' words. Jesus is saying that they will one day say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. I mean, these people are professing Christians who have taken the name of Jesus these are people that would be identified with the church. And even more, they are seeing uniquely powerful things take place. They are seeing miracles occur as they proclaim the name of Jesus. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note here as to why we can um, 
assume that these are Christians, professing Christians, is some point out the significance uh, of the fact that they call him Lord, given the culture of the day. Christians, at the time, they were under Roman occupation, and the Romans called Caesar Lord. It's the same, it's the same Greek word being used for Jesus. And the reason why this matters is that Christians would not call Caesar Lord, but they would call Jesus Lord. And I note this because calling Jesus Lord in this context meant that there was a level of commitment that I think you and I probably can't grasp. Because they were calling Jesus Lord under the threat of persecution. By calling him Lord, they were, putting, they were risking their lives by calling Jesus Lord. Something else to note there. Not only do they call him Lord, but what do they say? They say, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. Now you might know this, but in biblical communication... One of the ways that people uh, communicated uh, ex uh, exclamation or passion was to repeat their words. It was a way of showing emotion. You see this all throughout the Bible. So to recap all of that, what we have here is Jesus talking about professing Christians who display passion for their faith. They are those who do so at the risk of persecution all while seeing lives transformed as a result of their proclamation. And Jesus says, depart from me, evildoers. I never knew you. Jarring, no? Apparently, we can exhibit all kinds of external characteristics of being a Christian. And yet, in the end, never actually have the kind of internal transformation that welcomes one into the kingdom. We can see spiritual life in others through our proclamation, yet in the end, be spiritually dead ourselves. This reminds me of the movie, There Will Be Blood. If you've seen that movie in the movie, uh, Paul Dano's character, uh, which is um, actually one of my wife's favorite characters. He's so brilliant in this role, but he plays a preacher in this movie. He's this, he is charismatic, he's passionate, and at times he experiences even persecution as a result of his fervor for the faith. And people are genuinely transformed by his message, his understanding of the gospel. His church grows and people come to faith in Jesus. But if you've seen the movie, in the end, what we discover about him is that all along he's actually been this very self-oriented Selfish, selfish charlatan. I mean, even though God was at work through him and his church was growing and people were genuinely transformed by his sermons, ultimately what you see is that he was exhibiting gifts, these gifts of preaching and teaching others. But in the end, what you see is zero fruit in this man. And that's actually a very important distinction that Jesus makes in our passage. There's a very big distinction here between one's gifts and one's ability to show some kind of Christian character and fruit, which is actually Christian character developing within someone. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, 
And bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Fruit, my friends, is what makes all the difference as to whether or not one has actually been transformed by the work of Jesus. The passion of one proclaiming the name of Jesus is not proof that that person has been transformed. The proof of transformation is the fruit. I mean, could it not, though, be said that the passionate preacher is actually bearing fruit if lives are changed? Maybe. Maybe there's, there's fruit of his ministry, right? People's lives are being changed through this proclamation. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of fruit. Instead, Jesus is talking about a very particular kind of fruit. It's a kind of fruit that the Apostle Paul describes in Galatians 5, called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit growing within someone that proves as as to whether or not one is being transformed. That fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is proof that one is being transformed. You know, over the years, there have been a lot of really unfortunate stories that have come out about well-known, successful Christian leaders who have fallen into various moral failings. And what is striking about many of their stories is that people actually saw all along the way, people saw really problematic characteristics in that person. There were character issues amongst these leaders. But they didn't make a big deal out of these character flaws that they saw because there seemed to be fruit from this person's ministry. Meaning, God was working through this leader. People were being saved and healed and liberated through the work of this leader. But as Jesus has said, Jesus is not concerned with growth in numbers produced by an individual or their ministry. Rather, he is concerned with the growth of spiritual fruit within the individual. And too often, behind the curtain of these big, well-known, popular ministries, there was no growth growth in love and joy and peace and patience kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I don't say that as a, a condemnation to others. Rather, I say that as a warning to all of us who call ourselves Christians, as we are all subject to the same kinds of failure. You know, if we're here and we are passionate about Jesus, but we don't see growth in the fruit of the Spirit, this is a warning to us. And I especially think about that for myself as a leader. Just as a very quick side note, to all those here who are formal members of Redeemer East Harlem, as the pastor of this church, I want to say something very clearly before you. You know, I don't know what the Lord has in store for our church. We're still very much a church plant. However, as a pastor, just know that I must be held accountable to these standards that Jesus is putting in front of us. That I must be growing in fruit. If we have great successes as a church, but your pastor is not growing in the fruit of the Spirit, if there are character issues that do not reflect the kind of fruit that Jesus is describing here, Bring it to the elders. Bring it to our spiritual oversight. I, too, must be held accountable. I say this 
Members, do not let any measure of success suffice for me except a life of repentance and growth in the fruit of the Spirit. That's the standard, period. But I don't just say that for myself. We're all held to that same standard. Spiritual fruit is the marker of spiritual life, not successes in our life, not passionate expressions of our worship or our faith. And I'll even push this out even more because as a pastor, I find there are many different ways that we, we tend to calm ourselves down or we tend to make ourselves feel better about whether or not the Lord is actually with us or blessing us. Some, you may look to career successes and assume that success in your career is in some way the Lord blessing you, being with you, or family successes, or even your personal piety, or your biblical or theological knowledge, or a host of other things. And none of that matters. None of it. If we're not growing the fruit. All of it just becomes external ways that we try to pacify ourselves to the fact that maybe we've never actually experienced this transformation that Jesus is talking about. Because again, according to Jesus, if we are not bearing fruit as he defines fruit, then in the end, we may have never actually known him. And more importantly, he may not know us. So Jesus provides us first and foremost with a very jarring distinction between who is and who is not in the kingdom. But he also provides us, secondly, a confronting proposition. Explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus not only makes a distinction between uh, good fruit and bad fruit, he also provides this proposition. Specifically, he proposes that there is only one path by which one might enter the kingdom. He says in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. The reason why this is such a confronting proposition for us is because, of course, it flies in the face of the pluralistic ideology of the day that essentially says that all roads lead to the same destination. But what exactly, then, is Jesus proposing here? Well, let's consider that word narrow just for a second. You know, the old translations, you know, the King James in particular, translated that word narrow uh, as straight. And not straight as like the opposite of crooked, but rather straight like one is in dire straits, meaning one's confined, one's bound up. That's why we use the word narrow, because it, it gives us this picture of being confined. Uh, one pastor had noted that Jesus is essentially saying that the path on which one finds the kingdom of heaven is one that will seem confining and even crushing. Conversely, though, Jesus is also saying that the path that feels open, that feels free, that feels without constraints, that's actually the path that will lead us to destruction. So again, what is Jesus talking about? Because I think for most of us, as we think about these paths, as we think about these gates, these doors, I think for many, we probably immediately start to think about how we live, meaning many of us, I think, might assume that Jesus says that those on the narrow path are those who live righteous and holy lives, that those who are pious, those who are committed to Jesus and to the kingdom, it's those people who are actually on the narrow path. And maybe that's partly true, but consider the context of what we've heard thus far from Jesus, both today and in previous weeks. 
Because Jesus is never measuring one's position before God based on their morality or anything that they actually do. In fact, time and time again, Jesus has confronted the notion that just because we think we're good and moral and pious people, even if we prophesy and do miracles, none of that is proof that we're actually on the right path. So how can we live in a particular kind of way when Jesus has time and time again said no? It actually doesn't matter most how you live as far as your relationship between uh, yourself and, and the Father. Plus, let me also just note, that's essentially what every world religion puts in front of us when it comes to trying to understand what it means to enter into heaven. All other world religions essentially tell you, live righteously, live according to these predetermined set of moral rules, strive and work, be good, and in the end, if you're good enough, God will welcome you into this kingdom, or you'll enter into a state of nirvana or whatever the afterlife may be. I mean, even secularism has a version of this. I mean, life, live a life that meets your needs, furthers the progress of humanity, achieve greater levels of knowledge of the universe, and if you do, then you will have found a sense of meaning, a purpose, and maybe even a sense of peace. But in the end, it too is fundamentally the same thing. Strive, work to justify yourself. And according to Jesus, that's the broad path. The broad path is for those who desire to work and strive in order to find some kind of heaven on the other end. But according to Jesus, the freedom, the freedom that we desire is not found on that broad path, for that broad path leads to the confines of a prison. But the narrow path, according to Jesus, is something totally different, a whole different kind of paradigm than wrestling with and striving for works in this world. The narrow path, according to Jesus, is another means of justification because the narrow path is the gospel. I mean, what is the gospel? The gospel is a message that there is nothing that we can do to find favor with God. There is no key that we possess to open the gates to the kingdom. There's no amount of work one can actually achieve in order to find themselves on that narrow gate. Rather, the thing that brings you to that narrow path, that narrow gate, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the path. Jesus is the gate. And to be on the path is to acknowledge that he is the only one who is the way to that gate. I mean, this is what Jesus means when he says that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about the path. He's talking about the narrow gate. And here's what's kind of counterintuitive about what Jesus is teaching here. You know, whereas the broad path that seems free but leads to the confines of, of a prison and to destruction, the narrow path, it may seem constrained. It might seem crushing. It is narrow. But in the end, on the other side of that gate, it's not a prison, but rather unimaginable expansiveness, the freedom and the liberation that we seek actually comes by stepping through the gate that seems narrow. Probably the, at this point, the greatest Disney movie that has ever been made is Encanto. Uh, if you disagree, we'll pray for you. It is hands down the best. Uh, if you have not yet seen it, prioritize it. It is so good. I'm not going to unpack the whole storyline for you, but one facet of the story 
is that there's a, a family, and each member of that family is expected to receive a gift, some magical power. And to receive that gift, there's this ceremony where the child, who's not yet received a gift, walks down a path, a narrow path, as it were, that leads to a magical door. And behind that door is a bedroom, at least seemingly a bedroom. And as they lay their hand on the doorknob of that door, they receive this magical gift. And as they turn the doorknob, what seemed like a simple bedroom on the other side of that room, when they open the door, transforms into something far greater. An absolute wonderland exists behind that door. And so the seemingly simple door is actually unimaginable massiveness, a massive room hidden behind that narrow gate. So much so that one character named Antonio, and he uh, receives his gift, and he steps into the magical room. There's a, another kid that runs in behind him, freaking out over what they're seeing in that room, and she screams, it's bigger on the inside. And yes, for those who walk through the seemingly narrow, constrained path, through that narrow gate, through that narrow door, for those that enter through that, through Jesus alone, on the other side, it's bigger on the inside. That the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is unimaginably expansive. And the way into that kingdom is not the broad path that puts salvation in your hands. The way through into that expansive kingdom is through the narrow gate, the gate that forces us to trust and rely on Jesus alone. So this confronting proposition of Jesus is really more of an invitation to lay down our attempts at self-salvation, at self-justification. That's the broad road. But to instead choose the road that seems narrow, but it's a road that is paved by him alone so that we might possess true freedom, the freedom that we truly desired, the freedom that we were designed to experience, that freedom is found by trusting in him. The last thing I want to put in front of us, because I, we need to at least address what Jesus is putting in front of us in that final section, is that not only does Jesus provide us this jarring distinction, not only does Jesus put in front of us a very confronting proposition, but he also puts in front of us a firm foundation. Finally, Jesus leaves us with one final challenge. He confronted us with the notion that nothing that we do or contribute will lead us to being welcomed into the kingdom, that our faith is gonna be in his work alone, and that's what opens the door to this expansive kingdom, and that the proof of our faith is a life of repentance and one where we're growing in the fruit of the spirit. But then he says in verse 24, let me just reread for you um, those, those uh, 24 to 27. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams arose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams arose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What strikes me is Jesus' first sentence there in verse 24. 
where he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that struck me. What strikes me is how easily we can hear Jesus's words, but then do nothing with them. As a Christian, I'm speaking for myself, I find myself in that position often where I hear the words of Jesus but then I don't take seriously what it means to actually put it into practice. As a pastor, I see that in people all the time who hear the words of Jesus, yet, for example, don't take seriously what it means to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. I know many, and I'll include myself in this, who at times might be passionate about their faith, and yet are void of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The reason that happens is because in those moments, we do not fully trust that Jesus is the narrow gate. And to Jesus' parable here, we begin to build our lives on other foundations other than him. I mean, I obviously can't unpack that parable fully right now, but the house on the sand and the house on the rock, they look really similar. In fact, they may even look identical. But when the storms of life come, and they will come, the house that is not built on the rock but is built on the sand, it will crumble. The faith we claimed falls apart. We lose faith when tragedy comes. We lose hope when uncertainty comes. We lash out when our true, when our true foundations begin to shake. But Jesus, he's a firm foundation, the firmest foundation that we will ever possess because all other foundations are held together in our own strength. Those are houses for the broad path. They all are dependent on your own achievement, your own justifications. And our strength will at some point fail. But Jesus is our foundation, never fails. No storm of life, no rain, no wind, can take from us what Jesus gives us. That's what it means to put your house on that narrow path, on that rock. And so my call to all of us would be, I mean, whether you're a Christian, maybe you don't really know what you believe about the Christian faith, is what is the extent to which you truly do trust Jesus to be that narrow path, and as a result of trusting him in that narrow path, how have you built your life? Is your life built on him as that foundation, or do you find yourself building your house on other foundations? And probably the best way to determine whether or not you're building your house on the rock or in the sand is the fruit of the Spirit. As we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, it becomes proof that our house is built on that rock. I think that gives us at least opportunity to assess well where we stand in relation to the Lord. On the one hand, Jesus' words here should be jarring for us. On the other hand, they don't have to be words that we fear. Rather, we can find a confidence as we trust in Jesus, truly trust in him. Looking within, coming in repentance, and desiring growth. May the Spirit of God help us do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, in your love and in your mercy, that you have provided for us that narrow path. God, I know that for, for many of us, we desire to be on that narrow path. 
We desire you. And yet sometimes we, uh, we lose sight of Jesus. And as a result, that broad path becomes appealing to us. But God, you have given us tools to work against that kind of temptation. God, of course, you've given us your spirit who is working within us, who is leading us back to that narrow path, taking our eyes off of our own self-justifications, but again, putting them on Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would ask, or I pray that you would accomplish that, rather, in all of us. Lord, that you would grow in us the fruit of your spirit. And that, Lord, as more and more we grow in that area, that you would continue to build in us a confidence that we are yours. Lord, what's striking to me is as we allow <clears throat> ongoing sin in our lives, rebellion against you, it does undermine the assurance of our salvation. And so, Lord, we need you to lead us in repentance. That way we might confess those things to you, bring them to you, and be reminded of your forgiveness and your kindness and the ways that you hold us, that we are yours. We've got all this. I pray that you would accomplish it in us. Give us a confidence of your salvation. Make us people that reflect fruit, good fruit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.